What's up, gang? Welcome to The Greatness Machine. I'm your host, Darius Mershazday. I'm so pumped to have you here with me. Now, listen, The Greatness Machine, we're about two things. Number one, people who are living their passions. And number two, those who are creating greatness in the world and doing both of these things despite the odds against them. Each episode, we're going to feature interviews with game changers, business leaders, you know, telling us their origin stories, what made them tick, what got them to where they are now. Why? So it can help you step into your greatness within your life, your business, and your career. Occasionally, you might hear a few solo episodes from myself, moi, as I say, as I leverage my 20 years of entrepreneurship as a CEO and founder to help you grow and level up in your journey to scale your life and your business. So come be a fly on the wall, enjoy the conversation, and I'm stoked to have you here with me. What's up, everybody? What an interesting episode with Peter Schiff. Uh, you know, every now and again, we bring someone on the show that really has an alternative point of view of what's going on. And Peter is alternative and then some super interesting, learned a lot uh, really around what he thinks ha- is happening in the economy and, you know, what we can do to protect ourselves from some of these these things that are happening with, with the dollar, with the currency, and, and just, you know, really deep dive on the economy. So I love this. Um, you guys all know I love talking economy, and we had a great conversation. Hope you enjoy. Stay tuned. Guys, welcome to this episode of The Greatest Machine. I'm your host, Darius Manchazi, and boy, do we have a special guest. My man, Peter Schiff is in the house. Peter, welcome to the show. <laughs> Thanks, Darius, for that oh, rapid man. introduction. <laughs> you know, practice makes perfect. Uh, do you mind if I do a little bit of housekeeping and we'll get going here? Um, go ahead. What do you need to Let's, clean up? Oh, just, uh, there's a lot of mess going on here. So for, for listeners who are new to the show, the greatness machine, we're about two things. People are living their passions and those creating greatness and th- doing so despite the odds. And Peter here is not a short of passion or greatness. So I've been following Peter's work for quite some time. Um, he's, he's definitely a well-known guy in the financial world. Follow him on social, on M- on CM- CNBC, all the big shows out there. We're seeing Peter talk about what's going to happen in the economy. So I had my team reach out. And so grateful to have you here to talk about what's happening in the world. I'm sure a lot of listeners, or especially of our show, are really wondering what the hell what the hell's going on. So, uh, really, really grateful to have an expert like yourself here to talk about the things that you're seeing going on in the world and what we might be able to do about it to to position ourselves yeah. to create greatness ourselves. So, thank you for coming on the show today, Peter. Oh, thanks for inviting me uh, to come on. Oh, and by the way, you know, I used to be a regular on CNBC, but I haven't been on in years. So, I do a lot of shows. A lot of different networks, but that's not one of them. I think that I speak too much truth about the markets and the Fed and the economy uh, to be to be a welcome uh, voice on their air anymore. So they they stopped having me on. Uh, screw those guys then. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah um, you know, they, 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 you, if you so if you if you want to get good investment advice, you, you can't watch that network. I watch it for material for my podcast and for Twitter because you know it's they're good contrarians. But I wouldn't uh, take any of the advice that's uh, that's touted by their talking heads. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm with you there. There's there's a lot of noise. Um, do you mind if I give your formal bio and then we we can you know love to hear your origin story a little bit? Does that work for you? All right, <laughs> let's do it. So look for listeners who may be newer to Peter's work. Uh, Peter is a financial markets expert and economist. Uh, he accurately predicted the 2008 financial crisis well in advance, making him a notable figure in the finance industry. He's an expert in money and economic theory. He's authored several best-selling books, including Crash Proof and The Real Crash. 
and he's held numerous licenses is an economic as well as it was an economic advisor in the 2008 presidential run for ron paul i'm probably missing a few things i know you've got an amazing podcast but man i'm so pumped to have you here i love talking economy on the show i love really bringing this to our audience because i think a lot of people are out there are confused they're hearing a lot of different uh perspectives that can honestly get you where you like, I don't know where to turn, but love to hear a little bit about your background, how you got to where you're at. And then we can talk a little about what you're seeing in the economy and what you think is going to happen. So well, love to hear that. Yeah. Well, my background uh, is, is finance and investing. I've been doing that pretty much my entire life uh, since my early mid twenties, mostly uh, with stocks, you know, stocks, bonds. I've been focusing on international equities for many years now. Um, I've been involved in commodities. You know, I also have a business that sells precious metals, shift gold. So I help people build portfolios of good dividend paying value stocks, predominantly outside the U.S. because of my bearish uh, uh, take on the dollar and the U.S. economy. I've had that view for a while, and I think we're headed for a real economic crisis. I think it's really begun already, this uh, financial crisis that I think is greater than the one that I accurately predicted would happen in, in, in 2008. This one is going to be worse for all the reasons that I've been uh, laying out. And I think it's going to end up as a dollar crisis, which is the reason that I'm trying to encourage people to invest outside the United States and to own things like gold and silver. Uh, as far as the origins, you know, I, I think I owe my outlook, my economic understanding, my understanding of uh, uh, you know, Austrian economics, and then even, you know, the, uh, the U.S. legal system, the Constitution, and all my political views really come from my father, who a lot of people might know of because uh, he wrote many books. He was famous as a tax protester, uh, but he, you know, he wrote books on economics before he started uh, uh, pointing out the illegal nature of the federal income tax and the way it was being collected. And uh, he was a very principled man, and he ended up dying in prison as a result of those beliefs. But, uh, Basically, my um, my my understanding of economics and uh, you know comes mainly from my father. And so, so when when you start to look at you know I mean there's obviously a lot of a lot of different points of view out there of what's happening in the economy. You had this big you know growth of you know cryptocurrency and Bitcoin because of people's belief that the dollar you know fiat currency is gonna is dying. You obviously have very strong opinions against that. Um, and you know, you know, I've, I, I've seen that, that you've touted gold $5,000 an ounce, you know, when you start to look at what's happening and, you know, and, you, and, and to your point earlier that, Hey, I'm betting against the U S I think the U S is in trouble. I think there's a bigger crisis happening. Talk to us a little bit about what, what's underlying that belief for people that aren't familiar with your work. What is like the macro macro thing in your mind where you're like, yeah, we're screwed because because when when someone believes that perpetually, there's got to be a really good reason for that. Well, I think it's the, the 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 phony nature of the economy that we've been living in for the last couple of decades. It's just a gigantic bubble. Um, America runs enormous trade deficits with the rest of the world, better than a trillion dollars a year. We're also now running budget deficits in excess of, in excess of two trillion a year. So you're talking about $3 trillion a year plus of debt, uh, and it, it's completely unsustainable. Our whole economy is built around the service sector. But the only way you can have a service and economy is if you're able to import all the stuff that you don't manufacture. But the only reason we're able to do that is because the dollar is the reserve currency. And so we could print money and export that and then import real goods. 
But I think the dollar's days as the reserve currency are numbered because uh, we just have too much debt and we're creating too much inflation now to sustain the debt. Government spending now, you know, something like 40% of uh, government is paid for by debt. It is something like that. So we have an enormous deficit. If you look at what they collect in taxes versus what they spend, there's a huge gap. You'd really have to eliminate a third of the government now just to balance the budget. But by the end of this year, probably based on rising interest rates, you'd probably have to eliminate 50 percent of government spending to balance the budget. That's not going to happen. I mean, there's no way Congress is going to vote for, for those cuts. I mean, they won't even vote to limit the rate of increase of government spending, let alone actually cut it, which would be required uh, to have some sustainable level. So I think as inflation runs out of control, which it will, I mean, the Fed has spent decades or no, years creating inflation, uh, particularly in the last several years, you know, during COVID. But even prior to that, Q- QE1, QE2, QE3, that was all inflation. Uh, and now it's blown up. Uh, the numbers are much higher than their so-called 2% target. They're never getting back down that low again. Uh, but, you know, if you're going to have 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10% inflation year after year, that can't be if you're also going to be the reserve currency because there's too much of a loss being imposed on holders of that currency. So the world is going to get rid of the dollar and then the dollar is going to tank. And then you know, that's it for the economy because we can no longer afford these imports. We can't afford to finance our budget deficits. Then the, the, the Fed is going to have to really crank up the printing presses to supply the money that we can no longer get from abroad. And that's when inflation could just really turn into hyperinflation. So it's just there's just no good way that this is going to end. It's going to be a disaster uh, and people have to be prepared for it. So, so like, you know, and, and I've, I've talked with friends about this. I'm like, okay, I, everything you just said makes sense to the point and where I get like, where I'm like, okay, well, and then what? So my question that I've always asked is like, well, what's the, who's, who's, we're kind of in a tallest midget in the room scenario, right? Like who's the currency that steps in if the U S before this, it was what the British pound. And before that it was what the Dutch dollar, you know, I'm, I'm, I might be off on that one, but, but you know, who's the next currency that comes in to replace the dollar. And well, that's not the, just... everybody assumes that there needs to be a replacement currency for the dollar. And that's why there's a lot of complacency out there because people think that, well, you know, there's nothing that can replace the dollar. The euro's no good. The yen's no good. Uh, the Chinese RMB is no good. They're missing the point. You don't need a replacement for the dollar, at least not another fiat currency. The best replacement for the dollar is gold. Gold is a monetary reserve asset that is nobody else's liability. You do not give any special power to the issuer because there is no issuer of gold. It's mine. It comes out of the ground. It is a real element. It's a metal. And people forget that before the dollar functioned as the global reserve, the global reserve was gold. And when the dollar was initially accepted as the reserve currency, it was only accepted because it was not only fully backed by gold, but redeemable on demand in gold at a fixed rate. That rate was $35 to the ounce. So if a foreign central bank had $35, that was the equivalent of an ounce of gold because they could get that ounce of gold whenever they wanted. 
And so what I think is going to happen is when the world moves away from the dollar, they're just going to go back to gold. That's where they were before the dollar. And that makes the most sense to me. That's why central banks have been accumulating gold the way they have. That's why they're going to keep accumulating it. That's why the price is now over $2,000 an ounce and headed much higher. So, so, uh, and I'm going to throw on my, my, you know, Bitcoin hat because I know, and I know you, you, you are not a fan of Bitcoin, but a lot of people I know that love Bitcoin, the argument they make is that this is just the new, the new gold. And why do we need to go to, uh, dig a hole in the ground and pull some, you know, gold out when we can just <laughs> use, use, you know, a, a digital version of it, which, which is acts the same way. If it's a fixed, if there's a fixed supply of it. It's yeah, well, decentralized. Why your, not your, that? Your Bitcoin hat would be the dunce cap. <laughs> <laughs> because um, uh, first of all, you don't have to, most of the gold doesn't have to be dug out of the ground. It's already out of the ground, right? I mean, most of the gold that we have is was dug out years ago or centuries ago. <laughs> so yeah, there's a small amount of new production. I think the supply of gold grows by about 1% a year. So 99% of all the gold doesn't have to be dug out of anything, right? We, we, we've, we already done, we've already done that. But there's a big difference between real gold and fake gold, right? Which is what Bitcoin is. Gold is valuable because of its metallic properties, because what you can do with gold, the metal, it is the most useful metal in the world. There is tremendous demand for gold. Uh, jewelry makes up about half the demand. But uh, there's a lot of industries, the consumer electronic industry, because of its products, you know, properties as a conductor of electricity. But it's used in aerospace. It's used in medicine, in dentistry. Uh, it's just a, a, a very val valuable, very useful metal. Now, what makes gold good as money is because, A, it has a lot of value in a small place. It is easily divisible, uh, fungible, transportable. Uh, stuff like that, and very durable. I mean, because it, it doesn't decay like other metals. It doesn't tarnish, you know. So gold will maintain its valuable properties indefinitely. So it's great for a store of value. So if you have gold and you hold on to it for 10, 20, 100 years, nothing's happening to it. You know, other commodities, you know, they'll decay, they'll rot, they'll spoil, right? They, they don't have a, an, an infinite shelf life. You know, because money needs to be a unit of account and a medium of exchange, but also a store of value. So gold sure. satisfies all of the conditions of money. And that's why it's been money for uh, thousands of years, because it works so well uh, in that role. Now, Bitcoin copied a lot of the properties that made gold good money as far as its uh, fungibility and divisibility and portability and all that stuff. But none of that matters if the underlying uh, commodity has no use, has no value, right? So Bitcoin has no value. Bitcoin is not digital gold because you can't make anything with Bitcoin. It's not like I, if I, if I need to uh, you know, put some gold in my computer chip to conduct energy, I can't put Bitcoin in there instead, right? You know, if a jeweler wants to make jewelry, they can't take Bitcoin and use that instead of gold, right? So Bitcoin doesn't have any of the valuable properties that makes gold a store of value. 
Bitcoin has no value. And if you have no value, you can't be a store of value because you can't store what you don't have. Now, Bitcoin has a price because some fools are dumb enough to buy it. But you can't count on those fools always being that dumb and always being willing to buy. You know, at some point, uh, you know, the greater fool theory, you run out of fools. And then the, 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 the Ponzi implodes, which is what's going to happen to Bitcoin. Now, I, I don't know when, I don't know how much longer, uh, you know, this mania is going to last, but it will end. And it will end in tears for a lot of people who go down with the ship and keep holding. But, you know, there are people that are going to cash out and that have cashed out and that will have made a lot of money um, betting on this bubble because they got in early and they got out before it collapsed. So when you look at when you look at gold from a utility perspective, I hear what you're saying that, OK, it has these functional uses, mm -hmm. jewelry, dentistry microchips and then and but and then on the other side of it it's this idea of it being a current uh, use i guess uh, maybe i'm using the wrong word but currency right no we it's can, not currency it's money it's right? money so okay. a currency would be like the dollar or the euro now when the dollar was backed by real money it was legitimate currency now that it's backed by nothing it's fiat currency uh because those are the two forms of currency actual currency backed by money and fiat currency backed by nothing uh, and, uh, you know, Bitcoin has a lot more in common with fiat currency than actual money. So, so just, just so I understand. So, so you have a money use case and you have these other use cases, jewelry, again, microchips, all that stuff. What percent, like, like, I, I guess I would assume that most of the value of it is because it is seen as quote unquote money, right? We're saying it, well, this remember, is money. All of the value really is the fact that it can be used for things, right? But because gold lasts forever, the value of gold, it's not just the jewelry we're making today. It's the jewelry that's gonna be made in a thousand years. It's uh, the, the electricity that's gonna be conducted in a thousand years, you know, or more longer. So even though most of the gold that has been mined isn't used today in those industries. It has the potential to be used in the future. We've just mined it today and we're storing it for future use, right? That's why it has all this value. It's the, 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 um, the buildup of all that future potential expressed in the present value of the price. Because if, if, if gold could never be used for anything, it wouldn't be money. Nobody would accumulate it. Nobody would store it. It wouldn't matter, right? It wouldn't matter if it was scarce. Scarcity means nothing if what's scarce isn't also valuable. The key is to have something valuable that's also scarce, right? Some things, air is very valuable, but it's not scarce. It's abundant, right? So it's not going to, you know, you know but, but gold is both scarce and extremely valuable. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. In the world of successful partnerships, names like Procter & Gamble, Ben & Jerry, and supply and demand echo through business history. But when it comes to growing your business, who are the perfect partners? That's you and Shopify. <laughs> Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. We're talking from launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, 
all the way to the, did we hit a million dollar order stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling shipping supplies or promoting productivity programs, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Picture this, a time when my business was facing a tough hurdle and I wasn't sure how to break through. But then came the breakthrough moment, a game changer that took my business to the next level. You know, what I absolutely adore about Shopify is its unparalleled ability to adapt and grow with your ambitions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 75 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash Darius, all lowercase. That's D-A-R-I-U-S. Go to shopify.com slash Darius now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash Darius. Hey, business leaders and decision makers, get ready to supercharge your success with the ultimate source of business leadership, wisdom, Harvard Business Review. Harvard Business Review is your daily dose of practical advice for better business management. Visit hbr.org for the latest articles like The Art of Setting Expectations as a Project Manager or AI can help you ask better questions and solve bigger problems. But this isn't just a list. I personally found the article on AI absolutely mind-blowing. It changed how I approach technology and analytics, providing real-world tools for better decision-making. And don't miss the HBR Magazine. It's published six times a year, offering timeless insights around crucial management themes. Perfect for those moments when you just you know want to get away from the screen and dive deep into some transformative content. But wait, there's more. HBR delivers top-notch podcasts, videos, and real-world case studies. From HBR on leadership to the big idea, HBR covers it all, providing invaluable insights from the best in the business. Harvard Business Review has been a game changer for me. It's challenged my thinking and made me a more effective leader. And don't forget the newsletters. Stay up to date on a variety of business topics, ensuring you're always in the know. Ready to elevate your leadership game? Dive into hbr.org, explore their podcasts, read their magazines. The wealth of knowledge is at your fingertip. While much of Harvard Business Review's content is available for free after signing up at their site, subscriptions to unlimited content start at only $10 a month. Go to hbr.org forward slash subscriptions and enter the promo code greatness right now to take advantage of this great offer. Again, go to www.hbr.org forward slash subscriptions and enter the promo code greatness to learn more about this great opportunity to help manage your career and your business. So if, if, if you have all those same characteristics in, let's call it Bitcoin, but except it does, it has no usefulness, but it does everything else the same. And if the, the population says, well, okay, we're good with that. We all trust that. Why can't it be a digital version of gold? Because they're, everybody's not going to all trust it. You know? and, and, and just because somebody agrees to trust it today doesn't mean they're going to keep trusting it tomorrow. See, that, that's the whole thing with fiat currency, right? It's based on trust and confidence. People trust it now and they may stop trusting it tomorrow. With gold, it's not based on trust. It's based on an actual metal that has value. That's objective. We all know it has value. Um, we don't have to just accept the value on faith. We know it's there, right? 
Uh, but yeah, I mean, look, if you're telling me, you know, if we all lived in some matrix and the only cryptocurrency was Bitcoin and somehow we were all programmed to always accept it and always have value, maybe it would work. But the problem is we live in the real world and there's over 20,000 cryptocurrencies. Bitcoin is but one. Um, new cryptocurrencies are created pretty much every day. People, their preferences change like, like, like anything, you know, things are in fashion, their fads come and they go. Um, who's to say that because people like Bitcoin today and believe in Bitcoin, that tomorrow they may not like something better and believe in something else. I mean, there's no, you know, I mean, people started on the internet. There were a number of search engines long before people ended up with Google. And who, who knows how much longer they'll stay with Google. You know, before Facebook came along, people were using MySpace. And then MySpace went away and everybody started using Facebook. And then nobody really uses Facebook much anymore either. They're, they're, they're on Instagram or they're on TikTok, wherever they are. But And who knows where they'll be in 10 years. I mean, they probably won't be on TikTok. Maybe something else will come up. I don't know. But, you know, Bitcoin, yes, people like it now. Um, but who's to say those same people are going to like it in 10 years? We don't know. You know, they, they may decide that they like something better. Because again, yeah, I, they're all interchangeable. There's nothing actually there except your belief and faith in it. But people have faith in a lot of things and they end up getting disappointed. You know, a lot of people had faith in a lot of the dot-com stocks that went to zero. A lot of people had faith in uh, subprime mortgages that went to zero. You know, look what's happening now with all the, the banks that are collapsing. You know, people might have had faith in these banks and all of a sudden they're worried and they yank their money out and the banks fail. You know, trust can be lost very quickly. You know, a lot of people trusted these banks that are now failing. They trusted them a few weeks ago. They don't trust them now. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's pretty insane. I was just actually just going to pivot there. Before we go there, I, I wanted to ask you one more question because we're on the, the subject of store values. I know you're you you're a big fan of gold, as am I. But what other are, are how do you feel about other uh, precious metals or other stores of value? If if it, obviously those some have different use case. They're historically like silver, you have these, uh, you know, platinum. How are you feeling on other stores of value? Yeah, look, real things, real commodities are going to maintain their value in an inflationary world. And that's the world we're living in. You know, we've, we've been in an inflationary world. I mean, but it just hasn't been rapid enough inflation that it's been a concern. Well, we've really, you know, upped the ante here on this, the inflation game. And now it's a big concern because it's well above 2% pretty much everywhere in the world. And so, you know, real things are going to be far more important than just financial things. Because when inflation was low and real interest rates were, were negative and very low, um, that created a lot of value for the future earnings streams that people hoped would materialize from a lot of these high growth tech companies that they were investing in. But in an environment where you have much higher rates and much higher inflation, uh, the prospect of earnings in the distant future is a lot less appealing and a lot less valuable. What people want in an inflationary environment is yield now. They want income to offset the rising cost of living. And they wanna invest in companies that can raise their prices you know, and, and not lose all their customers. And so, you know, that, that it favors the here and now over 
the the the, the promise of something tomorrow. So I was having a, a discussion with a friend of mine. He's a real estate guy, and really kind of like talking about some of the stuff you're talking about. And you know, he had he's 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 actually you'll appreciate this. He's a Cal grad as well. You guys have the same alma mater, and we were talking about the economy. We always talk about the economy, and he and he said, "Look, you know, I was talking to a good friend of mine. He's he's a well-known guy in the bond world, and was kind of pushing some of the stuff we're talking about here. And he pushed back on him and said." The entire monetary system we have, if you go all the way down to the SWIFT system, is built on on the 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 dollar being the, this reserve currency, and just said what you're talking about is so complicated and so hard to happen that it that, that basically saying there's no there's no way this is going to happen, right? And I'm and my answer was like, uh, I mean, yes, it's easy to say that, but it would be extremely destructive if it happened, right? So let's just say it does. Let's say everything you just said is true. You know, dollar. Everyone says the dollar's worthless. There's too much debt on it. No more fiat currency. It's not the reserve currency. What is that in your mind when that crash happens? Walk us through what you think that looks like. From like, you know, and I and I know you can't see the future, but what are your thoughts on that? Well, first of all, uh, foreigners don't have to conclude that the dollar is worthless. They just have to conclude that it's likely to be worth less because the inflation rate is higher than the interest rate, and that will continue. That the Fed no longer has the ability. To restrain inflation because it can't do it without crashing the economy. See, if the Fed were to raise rates sufficiently to actually cut down, you know, bring inflation back down, the economy would completely implode. I mean, a lot more banks would fail and none of them would get bailed out. Uh, the government would be forced to slash spending on Medicare and Social Security and national defense and all the things that nobody wants to cut. Uh, it would be a horrific economic collapse. So they're not going to do that. And so inflation is never going to be brought under control. And so foreigners are going to finally get the message. And now they're going to start divesting of the dollar because they don't want to slowly watch their purchasing power uh, you know, disappear uh, through inflation. And then uh, the dollar is going to crash. And so all these bad things are going to happen because of massive inflation in the U.S. I mean, yes, uh, the government's not going to cut your Social Security benefits, but your Social Security benefits will be cut in value because you won't be able to buy very much when you get your check. So that's how everybody is going to feel the pain. It's not because the government takes the money away. It's because the government creates inflation that takes your purchasing power away. But that's going to be accelerated uh, when the world that has been stockpiling dollars for decades unloads them and tries to buy real things because they don't want to keep them in financial assets anymore. So they're going to buy stuff. And all the price of stuff that that they're going to buy is here in America, and it's it's all going to go up. So I think Hal talks about that in the fourth turning, right? That that we're in this fourth turning. What, I, I'm I'm assuming you're familiar with his work. Like, what what are you what are your thoughts? Are we you know when we're talking about this fourth turning that that there's massive that the things happen historically, and that we we as humans forget about the past and then screw up again. And you know when you look historically, Dalio talks about this in the changing world order. That you know we're we're in these cycles, these economic cycles. That it's just humans forgetting about the past, making the same mistakes, and here we are doing it again. You know. Yeah, I mean that is true to a large degree. That even though we've advanced a lot, you know, as a species, as far as our our technology is concerned and our understanding of science, like mathematics, you know, physics chemistry, biology, all that. I mean, we're a lot smarter. We have a lot more accumulated knowledge than, you know, our ancestors did. And, you know, scientists 
don't forget what all the scientists before them learned. They, they know it. It's taught and they build on it, right? So everything is kind of progressive. But it seems that when it comes to understanding economics, every generation forgets what the previous generations learned. And we just start from scratch over and over again. <laughs> and, and also when it comes to, you know, investing, you know, it, and, and that's just all about human nature, the, the greed and the fear. That hasn't changed. We haven't really evolved beyond that. So investors tend to make the same mistakes that their grandparents made and who make the same mistakes that their grandparents made, right? We don't, we don't learn from the mistakes of the past. We just have to experience them for ourselves. Because one thing we seem to always have in common is the idea that this time it's different, right? right. Well, yeah, that was the past, but you know we're so much smarter now and things have changed so much that that doesn't matter anymore. It's different this time, right? So we keep telling ourselves that. And, and human nature hasn't changed. That hasn't evolved at all. And so that's why you have the constant appeal of socialism, right? I mean, it's been proven time and time again that it doesn't work, but no one seems to care. They want to repeat the experiment. Right. We know what works, free market capitalism. Uh, yet every other generation wants to abandon it because they don't realize it. And, and the problem is that capitalism always develops problems because of the socialism that gets injected into it uh, by, by government. Because, you know, we have these democracies now. And of course, the, the fatal flaw of democracies is that it, you know, the majority rule, you know, and if, so the, if the majority is foolish, then foolish policies are going to be pursued and you're going to end up bankrupting your country, which is what all democracies end up doing. And, and, and the bankruptcy is because the, the countries become more and more socialized uh, as uh, the politicians have to. Uh, do all kinds of bad things to buy the votes uh, of the electorate. So to stay in office, they, they, they undermine the long-term economic vitality of the nation and until the nation and, you know, goes bankrupt. And then, you know, then, then maybe it goes all in on socialism. And then you have complete abject poverty and misery to the point where you have a revolution. You overthrow the government. You can start all over again uh, with freedom. <laughs> And then right. the freedom will build up the prosperity that eventually some future government will tear down. You know? Yeah. Uh, us humans, man, humans need <laughs> to get their shit together. Uh, <laughs> so, so that's why we need to turn it all over to AI. That's right. Just give it, give the computer, <laughs> let the computers tell us what to do. Yes, master. <laughs> so, so here we are right now, you know, we're seeing this, this, uh, it looks like a banking crisis unfolding. Uh, you know, no, had you told someone six months ago that Silicon Valley Bank and First Republic Bank would be, you know, taken in under under the, you know, uh, FDIC, they would have been shocked. Um, I would, you know, I wouldn't have been shocked. I, you know, That's I've been expecting, <laughs> you know, the thing is, though, I don't call it a banking crisis. I call it what it is. It's a financial crisis. It's already it's worse than the one we had in 2008. It's like nobody wants to say it's a financial crisis because they're afraid of invoking the comparison. The 2008. So it's like a banking crisis. Well, what was 2008? It was a bank crisis. It was banks failing. Why did the banks fail? Well, because interest rates went up and then the value of their collateral went down and uh, the banks started to, to, to go out of business. Well, that's what's happening today. It's the same dynamic, uh, but they, they people are reluctant to call it what it is. You know, just say it. This is the 2023 financial crisis. You know, so, and I think it's going to be greater than the 2008 financial crisis. It's probably not going to be confined 
to just 2023. I mean, we'll probably be dealing with this crisis in 2024 as well. Well, it looks like that, like, first of all, uh, you know, I, I unfortunately contributed to the financial crisis of 008 as I was a subprime mortgage lender. So um, I, and I didn't, you know, it's like uh, not Good knowing. Job. Yeah, thanks. Uh, you're <laughs> welcome. <laughs> I didn't know. I didn't know that I, I, I my primary uh, takeout was Countrywide Bank, by the way. So uh, yeah, had I only known, but um, you know, I learned a lot from that experience and and I've, I've spent 20 plus years in in mortgage lending and servicing and securitization. So that that's where my background is. And and I will say like in my experience of being a lender, mostly government lending is looking at having a lot of banks as my counterparties. Yeah. You know, in my experiences is they were way looser in how they lent in the early 2000s than after. They, you know, like anything they got punched in the face. Yeah, well got- it's just a a a certain type alone. And you know, by the way, when I was living in California, I sublet some office space to a mortgage uh, brokerage company named Countryside. <laughs> I, I, I knew the guy they, that owned. Yeah, you know they and and you know they were never sued, but I said I have a great slogan for you: Countryside is countrywide. <laughs> 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 but that that probably would have pushed the envelope too much. They might have they might they might have heard from the lawyers. But yeah, I, mean, I was witnessing firsthand how these guys were 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 creating these liar loans, and they sure. were they were basically uh, counterfeiting documents. They were like cutting and pasting. They were basically forging the documents to get guys loans and get them qualified. It was just a real. I, I mean, that's one of the reasons I knew to short subprime is because I saw how these things were made, and sure. I knew what a disaster this was going to be uh, when, uh, when the bubble popped and real estate prices crashed and, and all these loans ended up in, in, in default. But yes, if you want to just look at the mortgage market, yeah, you know, the mortgage market was worse back then that bubble, but we have a bigger overall credit bubble to deal with now because it's not just housing. It's pretty much everything that has been in a bubble because rates have been a lot lower for a lot longer. And so it's had a much bigger impact than it did on the the housing market or the subprime part of the housing market. But you still have a lot of people uh, that are in over their heads on on their their houses. The only thing that's probably going to save a lot of the defaults from happening is the 30-year fixed-rate mortgages that so many homeowners have, have locked in. You know, when you've got a mortgage at 3%, 3.5%, you've got a reason to, to stay in that house, even if you're underwater as far as the value, because your payments are so low. Just right. think of it as renting from the bank, because a lot of people have mortgage payments that are much lower than what it would cost them if they just mailed in their keys and, and rented something. Sure. So to that extent, people will stay in their homes. Plus, it's now so expensive to build homes that, you know, the value can go up as a function of how expensive it would be to replace it. But the commercial real estate bubble is much bigger than it was in, in, in 2008. I mean, it's not even close. That is an enormous bubble. The bubble in corporate America, the amount of a corporate debt uh, that is really unserviceable is bigger. The government debt is way bigger now than it was in 2008. I mean, the national debt back then was like what, 10 trillion, 5 trillion, or whatever it was. Now it's 32 mm-hmm. trillion. Um, I mean, so, I mean, the government is way in over its head and way more exposed. I think other debt, credit card debt, student loans are 
much bigger than they were back then. Credit card debt is much bigger than it was back then. So, you know, the whole the the the, the economy is, is is more levered up now than it was then. Uh, so, you know, it's in much much bigger trouble now. So, so when you look at like, and and I and I appreciate what you're saying. So, we've had this long run that started right after the GFC where rates got cut, you had rates low for too long, the Fed didn't act, which is historically what we're seeing as their MO, is to sit there and wait and react. And we have, because of the massive amount of, of inflation from an asset perspective, these, these assets got priced too high because the cheap debt was so cheap. What I'm hearing you say is that now that we've had, to, we got our hand forced through COVID to raise rates because inflation got uh, too hot, that there's a delta when we mark these assets to market. That delta is kind of like a version of what happened with having the wrong assets on the book or the, or the assets on the books don't support the banks in where they're at. And that's going to cause this crisis that you're seeing right now. Yeah, well, that's part of it. And I was warning about this for years. I was saying on my podcast, I was writing articles about how uh, the banks would be impacted when the Fed eventually raised rates. Because a lot of people thought rising rates were going to be good for banks. And I kept saying right. it's a disaster for banks because it's going to destroy the value of their collateral, their assets. I knew the banks were holding on to long-term mortgages, treasuries at low, low yields, and that when interest rates went up, the value of all that collateral would collapse. And that's exactly what has happened. You know, uh, people thought it was great when mortgages were three and a quarter, three and a half percent. It was great for the borrower. It was lousy for the lender because now the, the, the borrowers are in great shape because they've locked in these low rates, but the lenders are in horrible shape because they've also locked in low rates on the other side. They have to earn the low rates. But let's say now the Fed, Fed funds rate is up at five, five and a quarter. So people can put their money in a money market and get 5%. Well, if you want to keep, if you're a bank and you want to keep your deposits, well, you got to pay 5% to be competitive. But if all your money is locked up at three and a quarter, how are you going to pay five? You can lose a fortune, you go bankrupt. And if your depositors want their money because you're not paying them enough interest, how do you get it? You got to sell those mortgages or sell those treasuries, but they've lost a lot of value since you bought them. And the losses are so big that they destroy all the bank's capital. So now the bank no longer has enough capital to stay in business. So it's, it goes out of business. And I this what is happening now, I warned that this exact thing was going to happen, that it was inevitable. And that was one of the reasons that I was so opposed to the monetary policy that was making all this possible. I was very critical of what the Fed was doing because I understood the ultimate consequences. The people at the Federal Reserve had no idea the disaster that they were in the process of creating because they don't understand economics. You know, you, if you understand economics, you're not going to get a job at the Federal Reserve. <laughs> hey, folks, Darius Mershazade here from The Greatness Machine, your go-to podcast for unlocking your full potential. Now, you've heard me talk about the power of effective communication, right? It's the key to amplifying your influence, engaging others, and really making your mark in the world well. Well, hold on to your hats because I have something special for you today. Economist Education has rolled out a game-changing course on business writing and storytelling that's going to take your communication skills to the next level. Picture this. Economist Education provides online executive education courses built on the expertise and analytical rigor of the economist itself. These aren't your run-of-the-mill classes, folks. We're talking about two to six weeks online programs designed to empower business professionals like you 
to thrive in a changing world and workplace. These courses feature senior editors from The Economist and invited experts who dish out the insights on the latest developments in the business world. It's like having a VIP pass to the forefront of knowledge. When you sign up, you get a three-month digital subscription to The Economist to support your learning journey. But here's the kicker, my friends. Get 15% off any course from The Economist Education exclusively available through my URL, education.economist.com forward slash greatness. And don't forget to enter the promo code greatness at registration to unlock your discount. This offer ends on March 31st. So you better hustle if you want to seize this opportunity now. Don't wait until it's too late. So for 15% off any course from the Economist Education, head over to education.economist.com forward slash greatness right now and use the promo code greatness at registration. Your future self will thank you for it now. When you're hiring for small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. When I needed to expand my team, I wanted more than just resumes. I wanted quality professionals who were the perfect fit for our culture and goals. And LinkedIn Jobs delivered just that. LinkedIn Jobs isn't just another job board. LinkedIn Jobs has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. It gives you access to professionals you can't find anywhere else. LinkedIn does all that while making the process easy and intuitive. Hiring is easy when you have that many quality candidates. So easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get qualified candidate within 24 hours. They understand the challenges small businesses face, which is why they're constantly innovating to make the hiring process easier. And just recently, LinkedIn launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions in a snap. Trust me, I've used it. It's like having a personal assistant to guide you through the process, making it quicker and more efficient than ever before. And let me tell you, it made all the difference. With LinkedIn's help, I've been able to attract top talent and build a team that's truly exceptional. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash greatness. That's linkedin.com forward slash greatness to post your job for free terms and conditions apply what let's like look at this for a second though because and i had an argument i'm in a i'm in a group called tiger 21 and which which you might you might know of and so a lot of investors in that group for those groups before yeah i I thought you had and so um i'm in tiger and we're talking about this and and my my position was look like let's do compare what the what just what's happening right now to what happened 12 13 years ago government steps up does tarp the toxic asset relief program right i think that <laughs> did I, I, <laughs> I don't know what it's called that i think i just made that up but um they're basically buying all these bad troubled, i don't know but yeah, yeah troubled <laughs> toxic trouble right they're so they're buying all the assets off the books of the bank you had a you know they essentially worked a lot of these things out my understanding was the government actually made money on it what we're seeing right now is a duration issue, right? You have these assets, these let's call it 30 year fixed Fannie Mae securities or bonds or mortgages that are three and a half percent. As long as the, 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 some of these banks were booking these not based off of held the maturity, they're holding them at, at, you know, they're basically pricing them based off the time that they got them. So to your point, they have to mark the assets to market once the rates go up to five from three or six to three and they're taking a hit and they have to re and then now their balance sheet takes a hit. But what the Fed essentially did was they stepped in and they said, great, we'll buy those back to you at par and we'll hold them on our balance sheet because this is really just a duration issue. And if we hold it on the balance sheet, on our balance sheet, it's just going to pay off when it pays off and, it, and we get made whole on this thing. And now the bank doesn't get hit on its side. So I was my thought was I'm like, well, this just looks like another tarp. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Well, look, it's another government bailout, but you're right in that in 2008, the problem was the credit quality. 
It was that the loans were no good because the borrower couldn't pay. And that's going to happen. I mean, this, you know, as a lot of the debts mature in the corporate world, real estate debt, you know, corporate debt, junk bonds, there's that that problem is going to you know, raise its ugly head very soon where you're going to have a lot of debtors that are not able to pay. But yes, the problem that the banks are having right now is not that the U.S. government isn't paying. It's that it's not paying enough. It's paying these low interest rates in a market where rates have gone way up. And so now the value of the notes has gone down. But if you simply give it to the Fed, if you take 70 cents worth of treasuries or mortgages and the Fed gives you a dollar, it's created money out of thin air, number one, because it wasn't worth a dollar. Uh, and it has to expand its balance sheet in order to do it. So it's creating mm. inflation. And so the more inflation the Fed creates to bail out these banks, the more upward pressure is ultimately going to be put on interest rates. And now the more bonds the Fed is going to be forced to take on its books because now rates are going to go up even more and the value of the bonds is going to go down. They're going to have to take out more and more to bail out even more banks that, that fail. Um, so this is an inflationary process. Again, it's like, it's not like there's a free lunch. Right. If there's a problem, the Fed can't make it go away by printing money because it just creates a different problem. The best solution, of course, is to let the banks, you know, fail. But, you know, then obviously there's going to be losses and everybody can see the losses and you know who lost money. But when they bail everything out and create inflation, you know, then the losses are distributed throughout the population, you know, broadly through inflation. So instead of a few people losing their money, everybody, you know, has their money lose some of its value. You know, so instead of a few people losing a lot, a lot of people lose a little, but a little adds up. You know, you get five, six, seven, eight percent inflation every year and it, it really compounds itself. Yeah, that makes sense. I And I hadn't thought about it from the standpoint of and it makes total sense where when if they're bailing them out, that's inflationary in nature which again, perpetuates this issue that has not been an issue in a long time. Yeah. I mean, the other way to pay for the bailout would be for the government to actually raise our taxes and then give the money to these banks. Right. But right. nobody would support that. What? You're going to raise my taxes and bail out banks. No, I don't. No want that. So, <laughs> yeah. okay, we'll just print money and bail out banks. And somehow that's more palatable because people don't understand that that printing money is raising your inflation tax. You're still paying for it. You're just paying through it paying for it with higher prices rather than higher taxes. Yeah. Someone's got to pay for it to your point. So I have a question. Like when we look at this current environment, there's, we do, you know, we made a joke about it earlier around AI, but we interviewed um, Jeff Booth. I don't know if you know him um, uh, a while back. And he, he wrote a book about essentially around deflation and his position was that, that essentially because of Moore's law, that the speed of technology doubles whatever you like, it's like 18 months or less. And that that is deflationary in nature. And when you look at artificial intelligence, it's, it's doubling at even a faster speed of that. And that if we have this macro change that's happening from a technological perspective, that you are going to actually going to create de a deflationary environment because well, technology is deflationary in nature. Well, first of all, people use the words inflation and, and deflation incorrectly. So inflation, is an expansion of the money supply 
Deflation is a contraction of money supply. Now, when you expand the money supply, generally that leads to rising prices. If the money supply is contracting, that would generally lead to falling prices. Okay, so let's talk about rising and falling prices instead of inflation, deflation. So in a free market economy, capitalist economy, the natural tendency is for consumer prices to fall over time. That's what happens because in capitalism, whenever you produce something, you develop more efficient ways of producing that as you learn and as you make more capital investments, you ultimately bring the unit cost down. Right. And you can see that, you know, remember, you know, the, you don't remember the first television, but the first television set uh, was about as expensive as an automobile at the time. And it was huge. It was a big piece of furniture. The only thing that wasn't huge was the screen. The screen was like about two inches square. And it was all grainy black and white. And there was like one channel to watch. And it was on for a few hours a day, right? So it cost a fortune and it pretty much sucked, right? Now, you know, we all carry around televisions in, in, in our pockets. They're, they're built into our cell phones. Right. But I mean, even before that, you know, at one time, if you had a tele, tele, television, you were rich. Then the middle class, by the 1950s, the middle class could afford one TV in their living room. Now, even poor people have flat screen TVs in every room, right? So why is that? Why are the prices coming down? Because capitalism is efficient. It happens with everything. You know, the first cell phone uh, was extremely expensive and only, you know, Gordon Gecko could afford one. <laughs> now people on welfare have smartphones, right? Prices came down. Happens right. with everything. It's not just consumer electronics. Everything. Automobiles, you know, got a lot cheaper from when, you know, the, the first automobiles were for very rich people. The average person couldn't afford a car when they first invented them, you know. Uh, and so that's that's what happens. Prices are supposed to come down. That's a good thing. Right. You know, you know because that that's what makes things affordable. You know, I remember when the first uh, um, uh, high-def TV came out. I looked at it at, 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 a, at a store. I was in the, probably in the 80s or 90s, I forget. I thought it was a great picture. I'd never seen anything like it. It was like looking out the window as far as I was concerned. But sure. I didn't buy the TV. I really liked it, but it was like $10,000 or 20, whatever. I didn't want to spend that much money. You know, a normal TV back then was maybe seven, eight hundred. I wasn't spending $10,000 on one. But, you know, now, of course, I would never buy a TV like those, you know, those uh, tube TVs. You know, sure. who would buy them? They don't make them anymore because they, they're so they're so bad. Uh, compared to what we have now. So everything goes down. Now, the government, of course, takes advantage of that. And they create inflation because they think nobody will know. Right? Let's say that prices should have gone down by 3%. And the government just creates enough inflation so that prices go up by 2%. And they say, see, it's great, only 2% inflation. Yeah, but it's actually 5% because prices should have gone down by 3 Instead, they went up by two. I'm 5% worse off. I could have bought all this stuff for less money. But because the government created inflation, I now have to pay more. But the government has got people to think that falling prices is actually a bad thing. One of the reasons that they create inflation is to save us from falling prices. The politicians say the worst thing that can happen is prices going down. And they call it deflation. Deflation is terrible. We never want to have deflation. We have to prevent deflation at all costs. What kind of nonsense is that? 
we got to prevent the cost of living from going down. So you're telling me that you got to make sure that medical costs don't come down, that the cost of education doesn't come down, that food doesn't get cheaper, that, you know, that all the things that I need, you got to make sure they get more expensive and that's for my own good. It's all BS. And, and what they say is that the reason they have to do this is that if we believe that prices were going to fall, we wouldn't buy anything and the whole economy would implode because nobody mm. would shop. We'd all be sitting around with a wad of money and, and we'd spend nothing because we'd be waiting for the best deal, which is nonsense because nonsense. if that was true, nobody would have bought a cell phone. Nobody would have bought a television. Nobody would have bought a computer. Nobody would have bought anything. They would have spent been waiting forever. This is BS. That's not how the world works. You know, when prices go down, that's what creates demand. Right. People buy more as the price goes down. They don't buy less and they don't wait indefinitely for the rock bottom price. They wait till a price they can afford and then they buy. And if they can't right. afford it, well, the only way they can buy it is that the price comes down. Um, so this has been a bunch of BS. So when somebody is worried that technology is going to cause deflation. Yeah, that's great. It's supposed to do that. That's how it's supposed to work. And it doesn't mean that we should try to stop that by printing a lot of money. But nor does it mean that the government can print money uh, and, and get away with it because it's still doing damage, even if you can't see it. But um, I think they're going to have to create so much money that even if we got nice, healthy, falling prices where prices would have come down by 5%, we could still have 10% increases because inflation is 15%. Hmm. Ever walked into a place and instantly felt drawn in by the scent? Let me share a recent shopping experience. It was a crisp morning and I decided to browse through a new store that had just opened in the neighborhood. As I stepped inside, a refreshing scent of citrus and pine greeted me, instantly lifting my mood and making me feel welcome. As I explored the aisles, the pleasant aroma lingered, enhancing my shopping experience and making it more enjoyable. It made me realize how much scent can influence our perception of a store and how it can make a difference in our overall experience. For stores using scent strategically, that can help them stand out from the competition and create a welcoming environment that keeps customers coming back. If you've ever been in a Banana Republic, Abercrombie, Marriott, or Weston, you know how fragrance can take your experience from good to incredible. Scent Air guided stores, hotels, event spaces, and other businesses in creating fragrance experiences that encourage customers to spend more, stay longer, and leave them happier, ultimately enabling businesses to stand out among their competitors. The secret behind scent marketing is that it's more than just filling your space with a nice scent. Scent Air is proven to increased earned revenue up to 9%, keep customers in your business up to 18% longer, and boost customer satisfaction up to 20% more. Give customers an experience they won't forget with Scent Air's professional quality fragrances designed for businesses just like yours. Go to scentair.com forward slash greatness to learn how you can save 25% off your first Whisper Max diffuser and explore other great deals today. So I hear you, and I and and I, all I got to say is, man, what what a wealth of knowledge! I know I want to respect your time. We got it. We got about two minutes here. You know, obviously you have a, you have a strong opinion about this. It's one of the great reasons we asked you on the show. We appreciate you coming in here and sharing all these insights. Um, you know, for the average person listening to this, I'm sure they're like, oh my god, the sky's falling. What the hell am I going to do? You know, what advice do you have to the average person listening to the show? I'd love I'd love for you to give a few pieces of, of wisdom there. Well, you got to recognize that this thing is going to end with inflation. There's no other politically viable way out. Not that inflation is a way out. It's just kind of the default position of politicians. 
because everything else from their vantage point is worse. And so recognizing that inflation is a massive transfer of wealth from uh, creditors to debtors, that if we're gonna live in an inflationary world, then you have to have a portfolio that will benefit from inflation. Most people's portfolios, the way they're currently constructed, are going to lose as a result of inflation. You don't wanna have a losing portfolio. You don't wanna be the patsy that's stuck holding the bag. You wanna be able to make some money off of this. You can't stop it from happening, but at least you can position yourself so that when it does happen, you, know, you, you gain as opposed to, to lose. And so the way you do that is you own real assets, income producing assets, preferably outside the United States that are tangible businesses with real plant and equipment and resources that the companies own that governments can't print. And they sell products and provide services that everybody needs and that they will pay higher prices to continue to buy. And you own commodities themselves. You own traditional stores of value, monetary alternatives to the dollar, which would be gold and silver, uh, own gold and silver mining stocks. I mean, I am building portfolios for people at my asset management company that I believe will do extremely well during stagflation. That is a weak U.S. economy with high inflation. My portfolios are built to shine in that dark economic environment. The portfolios that did well you know, in the 90s and 2000s are going to do awful during this time period. So you, you can't uh, you know, stay with that strategy, which is what most people will do. You know, you know, the FANG stocks or, you know, U.S. Treasuries. None of this stuff is going to work. Now, also, I manage a, port a family of, of mutual funds, the Euro Pacific funds. I have five funds. You can buy them anywhere. You can buy them directly on my website, which you can see above my shoulder at Europac.com. You can go and buy my mutual funds directly off my site. But also, they're on every discount brokerage platform. I have a international value fund, an international dividend payers fund, uh, a gold fund, a emerging market fund, and a foreign bond fund. My, my international dividend payers fund last year uh, was the number one performing fund in its category of 350 international funds. It got an award from Lipper. It was number one, by, uh, rated number one by Morningstar. It was written up as the top fund and picked by US News and World Report. So we just crushed everybody last year. And we're doing really well again this year. You know, we're not number one so far this year, but you know, we might be it by the end of the year. Uh, but you know, we're we're in the top, I think, quarter. Nice. Um, but we got a great portfolio. And my other, all my funds, uh, I think my value fund is in the number number one fund over the last five years at a, in its category. So that's a pretty good track record of getting good value stocks. But I think we're just starting now to really, really outperform. And so I think it's a great time. Read the prospectuses, you know, if you want, before you hop into the funds, you know, everything has risk. Uh, my funds included, you know, you're investing in equities. The riskiest ones, I think, are my gold fund and my emerging market. But I think the gold fund, I mean, I think gold stocks could 10x, 20x or more. So if you have a higher risk tolerance and you really want to profit from massive inflation and the dollar collapse, I think these gold and silver mining stocks are the way to go. Love that. Mr. Peter Schiff. You're an honorable man. I appreciate you coming in here and sharing all your wisdom. Um, for anyone that wants to connect with you, you have an amazing podcast, great presence on online. Where can people learn more about you? And um, obviously, anyone that wants to invest, you can go to europack.com. But I'd love for you to share that, and we'll get you wrapped up and get you out of here. Yeah, sure. So I am on social media. 
my number one site that I use the most often is Twitter. I'm getting close to a million followers there. Um, and so you can follow me at Peter Schiff at Twitter. You'll see I have like 950 something thousand followers. Then the number two is YouTube. I mean, I have over 550,000 subscribers to the Schiff Report or my, my uh, YouTube channel. Uh, and that also, I have the my podcast there, the Peter Schiff Show, which you can watch on my YouTube channel. You can also listen to it on shiftradio.com, but that doesn't have, I've been doing a lot more with video recently. So if you want to see and hear the podcast, you can do that on my, on my YouTube channel. Uh, but if you're just, you know, in your car and you want to listen, you know, and it's, it's there on shift radio, it's on Spotify and iTunes and all the other places that you would expect to find uh, podcasts that you can listen to. Uh, so, but yeah, I'm on Instagram. I'm on Facebook. I'm, uh, you know, so I'm on, I'm on all the traditional platforms. I'm even, I'm even on TikTok. you know, so, <laughs> nice. Good so, teaching the kids. Uh, so follow kids. me on all my uh, social media platforms and uh, make a habit of listening to the podcast or watching them. I generally do two a week, sometimes more, you know, sometimes less, but generally the, it's about two new episodes a week. Awesome guys. Well, listen, go and support Peter, check out all his work all over social. We'll put all this stuff in the show notes. And like I said, so much gratitude from here at The Greatness Machine. Appreciate you so much, Peter, for coming on the show. Thank you for coming, my friend. All right. Thanks a lot for having me on. Good luck. All right, everybody. Peace out. We'll take care. Share this. We're leaders. We're givers. We share this. This is a lot of important information for people to want to learn about what's going on in the economy. So make sure you're sharing this. Until next time, peace out. We love you. You are listening to The Greatness Machine, and that's a wrap for today. Listen, if you love what you heard, subscribe to the show on whatever podcast platform that you're tuning in on so that you don't miss any of our future episodes. We have tons of great people coming on, and we're, we're stoked to have you here to enjoy it with us. Leave us a review. Tell us what you love most about this particular episode. We love getting the reviews. We love to see what you guys love most. And if this particular episode you know, made you think of someone who's leveling up in their business and in their life, print screen, share it with them. Leaders are the best givers. And after all, we're all here to support and grow with each other. And in case you want to see some of the fun behind the scenes shots or some of the things that we're doing, I'm actually writing about this in my weekly newsletter. Go to www.therealdarius.com and subscribe to my newsletter. We're talking about fun things like business and life and mindfulness and cryptocurrencies and gosh, I don't even know everything and anything, but it's tons of fun stuff I write about. I try to get it out on a weekly basis. You can subscribe at www.therealdarius.com. And with that said, look, thank you guys so much. I appreciate you. I love you. Peace. We're out of here. See you guys on the next one. Whether your resolution is to save money, eat better, or stress less, HelloFresh is here to help you do all three. Say hello to your most delicious year yet. With fresh ingredients and chef-crafted recipes at the price you'll like, delivered right to your door. Don't let recipe boredom strike because HelloFresh has more options than ever before. Dig into your biggest menu yet with over 45 dinner options to choose from weekly and even more market add-on items that suit any lifestyle. Someone who's always on the go, the convenience of having delicious and nutritious meals delivered right to my doorstep has been a game changer. I'll never forget the first time I tried HelloFresh, the excitement of unboxing fresh ingredients and the joy of cooking up a restaurant quality meal in my own kitchen. I felt like I had my own personal chef minus the hefty price tag. What really hooked me was the variety of recipes they offered, 
from exotic cuisines to classic comfort food, HelloFresh keeps my taste buds dancing. And the best part, no more last-minute grocery runs or wasted ingredients. Everything I need is right in the box. Ready to join America's number one meal kit family? Dive into a world of flavor with HelloFresh. Go to HelloFresh.com slash great free and use the code great free that g-r-e-a-t-f-r-e-e for free breakfast for life one breakfast item per box while subscription is active that's free breakfast for life at hellofresh.com slash great free with code great free this episode is brought to you by the yap media podcast network i'm hala taha ceo of the award-winning digital media empire yap media and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's going to push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.